We would like to welcome you this morning to Mission Bible Fellowship as Pastor Stuart Guthrie brings a message from God's Word. We hope it challenges, encourages, and strengthens your walk with the Lord. This morning we'll be taking a journey through the life of the prophet Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah was a prophet that was uh, born during the, the, the king, the reign of the king Josiah. And uh, really, uh, I don't know if y'all know, but we're expecting a baby in November, and, and we have decided to name that baby Josiah, one of the good kings of Judah. And so um, this is the, the reign during Jeremiah's life was King Josiah. And, and Jeremiah came from a, a priestly family. We see as a young man, uh, he was called by God to speak the words that God would put in his mouth. The call of Jeremiah that was received to speak as a prophet was much like that of Moses. If you remember in the the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, it begins to describe how Moses was called by God as the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a burning bush. And, And once the angel of the Lord got his attention, he began to tell him, of the pains and the sufferings that that he had heard from his people Israel, and that Moses was going to be the one the Lord was going to use to deliver his people out of the hands of Pharaoh. Now, did Moses simply say, all right, Lord, let's do this, let's get into it, let's let's just jump right into it? No, he began to make excuses like, hey, you know, I've never been eloquent in speech. How am I going to be the one used by God to deliver these people? From Pharaoh. Well, in Jeremiah, in some ways, had the same experience, the same response as God called him. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 to 8, it reads this Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Now let's just stop there for a second. Because next week we, we're going to be able to support an organization that reaches out to the community to save the lives of unborn children. And this is one of the verses that we look to as Christians as we support pro-life as believers. Because here we understand and we see that God, before He was ever, Jeremiah, before He was ever formed in the womb, God knew Him. And before he was ever born, God consecrated this prophet for a work. And therefore we see that life has value even in the womb and even before it happens, God knows what's going on. And then he says, I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. Because I am youth. Here we see an example of of prophets and people being called to do the work that God has called them to do. And sometimes when God calls us to do things and step out on faith, boy, it can be a challenging time. And here we see Jeremiah going through the struggle of the realization that God has called him, He has consecrated him before he was ever born to do a work for the Lord. And then he begins to worry and said, look, I'm just a youth, but listen to what the Lord says. He says, but the Lord said to me, do not say I'm a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. 
Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. This morning as a church, we shouldn't get caught up on the ages of people. We have in this church, God has blessed us with children up to older adults. And some even older than older adults. And But you know, God can use us wherever we are in our lives, whatever age we are in. And so God can call us even as a young man to do the work of the Lord because God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And so if He is calling you this morning in your life and in your ministry to step out on faith and to do something as He's called me and and other pastors and other missionaries and other people to do the service of the Lord, my encouragement to you is this, do it. Because God doesn't care how old you are. He doesn't care about your age. What He cares about is a willing vessel that will be obedient. And Jeremiah was. And here He promises to deliver him, to equip him for the work that He's called. And so Jeremiah's not really feeling it. He's not going, yeah, let's go conquer the world, God. No, he's he's beginning to struggle with these things. I remember when God called me to pastor, I I said the very same thing. God, I graduated with a 1.7. I mean, how am I going to stand up and preach the Word of God? But understanding it and building in my faith, God began to show me that He can equip us who are willing to serve Him and to do what He's called us to do. And so this morning, if God's calling you to do something, my encouragement is to step out on faith and trust God that He can make you into the vessel that He wants you to be. And so God reaffirms Jeremiah and says that He will be the one to put the words in His mouth. Later in chapter 16, we learn a little bit about this prophet Jeremiah as as he was told not to have children, not to get a wife. Why? Why? Is God like anti-family? No, because there was a distressing time coming upon the people of Israel as he tells us in chapter 16 that, that people would begin to die of deadly diseases. And so Jeremiah was a man of God asked to do certain things for certain people and to bring about oracles of prophecy. And what we see is that his oracles of prophecy on the most was against Judah and Jerusalem dealing with the judgment of God. Because of their disloyalty to God, Yahweh and His covenant. Now Jeremiah's ministry obviously was not a popular one. Uh, about the only king that he spoke favorably to was King Josiah. The other kings of Judah didn't really like it because everything they were hearing was about judgment. What God was going to bring about in the life of Israel. And so I'm sure the people were there saying, Oh, prophet Jeremiah, listen. A loving God would never do these things to His own people. You must be mistaken. Now, I don't know about you, but in our day we hear about the judgment and the wrath of God that's to come and we hear of people saying, if your God is loving, He'd never bring about hell in the lives of people. And so I'm sure that's what they were hearing. Jeremiah's message was obviously a hard one to hear, but while he spoke largely about the judgments, as he spoke his oracles of prophecy, he also spoke about the prophecy of salvation, about redemption about deliverance. And really this is the beginning of what we are starting to see in the beginning of chapter 29. 
A promise of deliverance for a people of Israel. The message of deliverance was, was given to a certain people in a certain time. Now, I understand that uh, that doesn't mean there aren't timeless truths in this passage of Scripture. You may say, Stuart, when are you going to get to the text? Well, listen, what I want you to understand this morning is we can take Jeremiah 29, 11 and put it up and preach the message, but until we understand the context of what's happening throughout the book of Jeremiah, we can interpret Jeremiah 29, 11 wrongly. But there are timeless truths. But given promises, listen, out of context, is not fair to the Word of God and not fair to the reader of the Word. To you and to me. Because we should expect that when God gives you a promise, when God gives me a promise, that God will do it. And so this morning I want us to look. I don't want this morning to have you wonder, as we look at this passage, what have I done wrong? What is it in my life that I've done wrong? And feeling like God is mad at you. Because this promise is not specifically to you and to me directly. It's to the people of Israel. And the promise of deliverance from the Babylonian captivity that they were in. And there's great hope in this message. And I hope that as we look through and as we discuss chronologically what's happening from Jeremiah 29.1 all the way up to 11 and on into 14, that you can see the hope that's brought about in this passage of Scripture. Well, with all that said this morning, let us turn and begin to look at our passage this morning. Jeremiah 29.11, if you will, turn there with me. It reads this, Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. It's a letter we see sent by Jeremiah. When we read this one verse, we see a hope. We see this promise. But as we begin to look at the bigger picture, I hope you find it more hopeful, more encouraging. Jeremiah is opening the door for hope in the people who are separated, who are in exile, who are devastated. In the first part of the chapter we learn, if we read verse 1, it says, Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent to Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It's a letter written by the prophet Jeremiah in Jerusalem. It's written to Babylon, which is about 700 miles, give or take, away from where Jeremiah and these exiles are. And it was delivered by a man by the name of Elisha. But what I find in the letter interesting is it begins to tell them in verses 4 to 7 as they're sitting in a place removed from their homeland, living in exile, living in captivity, he begins to tell them, you need to build houses. Let's, let us, let's read 4 to 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Listen to what he says. He said, build houses. 
Live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands. And there may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. You see, God is calling these people to increase and not to decrease. To settle down where they're at. In the beginning of verse 4, I don't think we need to miss something needs to draw our attention. He says, to all the exiles that I have sent into exile. God has sent His own people into exile. Why? Why did God do this? I mean, the God of the Bible sent His very own people into a place of captivity in exile. The exile was bad. I mean, it's the same thing as being taken captive. Imagine us as America. I mean, we're a prideful nation about America. We're, we're pleased to be Americans. We're proud to be Americans. Now imagine another country coming in, taking our country captive. Warfare. Death. And our homeland that we once knew is no longer our homeland, but another, and it lies in ruins. Listen, these people of Israel were experiencing this. The temple that they used to worship their God in the middle of all this is lost, is destroyed, is burned up. They have no way, no opportunity to serve the Lord their God. The leaders are enslaved, the peoples are deported, and those that have escaped had to flee. Israel's identity itself is at stake. Welcome to captivity. Welcome to an exile brought about by the God that we worship today. And so I ask why? Why would God do this to His very own people? When you begin discussing the Bible with people, you know what questions they ask you? How can a loving God send His own people into exile? That's what you get in the world. And so we better have a good answer of why. We better come to a conclusion of why God allows His own people to be sent into exile by Himself. And He tells us because the covenant promises that God made, though they were unconditional, though they were eternal, people had responsibility to maintain their faith and obedience. Though the covenant that God had made with His people will be forever, there should be encouragement in that. Because the covenant that God has made with us through Jesus Christ is eternal. That means when we become born again, we become to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, there is an eternal security that is brought about because it's not done through our works, but done through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The prophet's message to his people was filled with urgency on a normal basis of repentance to call this nation of Israel back to the God of the universe. To turn from their evil ways and turn back to God. I mean, just look at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14. It says this, Return, O faithless sons, declare the Lord, for I am, I am a master to you. And I will take you one from a city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion. The cry here is for these people to return. The Lord gives them more reason. In verse 15 as He continues, He says, Then I will give you shepherds 
after my own heart, who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. We see prophets pleading in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. We see them pleading in chapter 18, verses 7 to 11, as he says, God says, I will destroy this nation unless it turns from its evil ways. And then in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 4 to 7, we read this, And the Lord has sent you, all His servants, the prophets, again and again, But you have not listened nor inclined your ears to hear, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after other gods and serve them and to worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands and and I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Now listen, I think it's safe to say right now today that the God we worship, the God that you came this morning to hear from is the same God that spoke through this prophet Jeremiah. And the God that we worship... It's not a changing God. It was them that provoked God. It was them that caused their own harm. We as America better wake up as a nation. We as Christians better wake up as a nation. Because the same God that sent His people into captivity is the same God we worship today. Now, Us as individuals, we need to begin to look at our own sin, our own life, and ask the Lord to see what it is that's happening in our lives because He's an unchanging God. And that God, He loves you so much that He would send us into a place of exile. He would send us into a place of trouble, of trials, and of tribulation to get us back. Now don't, listen, don't shut down here. Don't shut down here because I want you to understand the promise that God has made to the people of Israel is that He won't leave them there. He won't leave them there. But He loves them enough to put them there to get them back on track to where they need to be and God will not leave them there. I'm not suggesting that we as a nation are in exile. I'm not suggesting that we as individuals or or a church as a universal body of Christ are in exile. But what I am suggesting is that sometimes God takes us places. He puts things in our lives. He brings us into valleys. He brings us into hard times to refine us as pure gold. And that time and that experience can feel like you are in exile. I've been there. It's not a fun place to be. Verse 7 though, listen to what he says here. In verse 7 he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will have welfare. 
In addition to these exhortations, these uh, in his ex- exhorting the exiles to settle down into Babylon, to get comfortable, to start families, to build houses, to plant gardens, Jeremiah begins to appeal for them to pray to the people in which they live. Pray for the pre- peace and prosperity of the city. And listen, prayer is an example of being humble, saying, You know, God, I'm coming to you because I realize I can't take care of the problem. I realize in my own inability that you are the one that can fix things. Because he says, listen, in its welfare, you will have welfare. And so, we as a nation ought to be praying. Though we might not be in exile, we need to be praying for the nation in this situation because in its welfare in its well-being, when God begins to mold the people of America back into a vision of God, then we have welfare as a people. Kind of reminds me of what we see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. He says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's a timeless truth. There is a timeless truth that we see in Jeremiah 29. That even we can pray for our enemies. God calls us to do it in the Old Testament. He calls us to do it in the New Testament. God is consistent. He doesn't change. Jesus wanted us to live this out as well as God calls us to in the Old Testament. Sometimes I wonder if we really do pray for our enemies. I don't know about you, but I don't wake up in the morning and go, Who hates me? And I'm going to pray for them this morning. Because this is like the first thing on my mind. But, but really, we should begin to pray for our enemies. And, and, and if you're like me, I, I don't feel like I have any enemies. And if I do, I don't know. But, but there are enemies of our nation. Enemies of the Christian faith that we as a people, as a group, as the body of Christ can begin to pray for that hate us. I mean, people die every day in Muslim countries because of their hatred for Christianity. And so we need to really begin to pray for our enemies and for our nation. God is consistent. And He desires those in exile to pray for Babylon. And so today we're called to lift up our enemies as well. So we have here a letter from God to a people that are obviously not settling down. They're they're not praying for the nation in which they're captive to. And so you have to ask the question, why? Why aren't they settling down? What reason, what hope do they have not to settle down? They're there. And so why are they not settling down? Well, Jeremiah begins to give us some insight in verses 8 to 9 as he reads this. He says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream for they prophesy prophesy falsely to you in my name and, and, and I have not sent them declares the Lord and so here we have a nation of people who are, who are being told by people false prophets maybe uh They're being told that uh, it wouldn't be long. It wouldn't be long until God delivered them. Maybe they're giving the men and women promises that don't come from God. 
the people of exile don't know what to think. They don't know what to think. Maybe they were calling the people to fight and rebel and to stand up for what they believe to get back home. But whatever the case may be, God has other plans for these people. Listen, the people, the exile were struggling. They wanted a hope. They wanted an answer. They wanted to know what was going on in their lives. Their their hopes of leaving now was all messed up. And again, this prophet Jeremiah brings more bad news as they learn that the false prophets are are wrong in their falseness. Whatever it was they were lying about. And so I could see them wondering, what is God doing in our lives? We are the chosen people of Israel. And if you're here today, and in your life, you're wondering, what is God doing in my very life? What, has, what is going on? It seems like everything that I know is falling apart. My marriage is falling apart. My children, they're walking away from the faith. My husband, he won't believe in the gospel of Jesus. What is going on in my life, God? And if that's you this morning, you may be feeling the same way, asking the same questions. Has God left me? Has God left me? Has God abandoned me because of my sin? Has God sold us or divorced us? Isaiah 40, 27 says this, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due to me escapes the notice of my God? These people truly believed that God did not see what was going on in their life. Their ways were hidden from Him. The sin that they had done, the justice that was due because of the lifestyles they were living, thought it escaped the notice of God. But God was not blind to their sins in their lives, and God is not blind to our very sins. He's not blind to mine, and neither yours. Today you may be going through an exile, a hard time, a trial. You may be going through a time of refining. Listen, because you were in exile doesn't mean you did something wrong. You can live the most godliest life, live by the law, follow everything that you could do, and God can still put you in a place to refine you and make you a better man of God or a better woman of God. I can think of many reasons. Maybe the Lord wants to find, refine you to make you usable to make you accomplish mighty things for His kingdom. And if He doesn't refine you, you'll never accomplish them. Maybe He wants to show you what grace under fire looks like. When trials come your way, when we look at John chapter 15, as as I said in that classroom that day, And I was asking God, what are you doing in my life? You've taken everything from me. And here my wife and my family can't eat. What is it you're doing? 
And then we see in John chapter 15 as He says, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser and He prunes those He loves so that He can make us into something more fruitful and beautiful. What is it that God has done in your life? Where is it that He's pruning you? Because He prunes those that He loves that you might bear more fruit. And I'm sure there are many other ways God can put us under trials that you might be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what James says, Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Don't confuse God testing us with trials in life and testing us with sin. God doesn't test us with sin. The sin that we test ourselves with is because of our own desire, our own lust to sin. But God puts us under trials and tribulations to make us, to grow us. And it begins to give us an opportunity to be refined. And the next thing you know, we're out sharing our faith. He begins to grow us. The next thing you know, we're going to Bible college so that we can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and begin to study the Word and change it. And the next thing you know, you'll be in the community sharing your faith with somebody who has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants to make us more intentional as Christians to bring about the Great Commission. And sometimes that comes through trials. Jeremiah continues to say, Oh, you're not coming home right now. You're not coming home right now. You're not even going to be delivered soon. What a wonderful message from a prophet. <laughs> Thanks for the encouragement, Jeremiah. Well, listen, this morning, whatever exile you're going through, God doesn't promise to bring you out of it anytime soon. He will bring it out when you are refined and ready for His work. And that's what He says here. He says, beginning in verse 10, He says, it will be 70 years. Settle down, build some houses, plant some gardens, have some babies, marry off your babies, let them have babies, and begin to multiply because you're going to be there a while and begin to pray for your situation. Though the air had been removed from the Israelites, much like the air from Kentucky last night as South Carolina intercepted that ball in the fourth quarter, they just had no hope. Well, here, the people of Israel, they, they've just received the message that oh, we're not going home. We're going to be here for 70 more years. And all hope had seemed to leave. But God doesn't leave us there. Though Israel was hopeless, God would never, ever want us to remain in that state. And listen this morning, He doesn't want you to remain in that state. Whatever it is in your life. I don't know what you're going through. I know that this preaches to me in certain areas. And I'm encouraged to know that God doesn't want to leave me there. And so we see in verse 10, in full, it says, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, what does He say then? I will visit you and fulfill my good word in you and bring you back to this place. Now, if you're me, if you're me and, and you're sitting here and you're reading this and you go, oh, great, goodness, this isn't very hopeful to me, but 
But if you're me, you're getting excited because now you begin to see and understand that in the middle of confusion, in the middle of your trials, in the middle of the hard times of life, even when they are from our own sin, God wants to bring us back. That's the hope. That's the promise that we need to hold on to. He doesn't want to leave you there. Listen, He knows my sins. He knows your sins. And they're all bad. But God wants to bring us back. He sees everything we do. And that should put us on our knees right now. That should put us on our knees. Because when I read this passage, when I studied this passage, I began to see that the sin that I commit in this life is not pleasing to the Lord. Though I'm righteous in Jesus Christ, I'm righteous in the eyes of God, there is a responsibility of free will to choose to obey and follow God's commandments. And we need to do that. The hate we have for brothers and sisters... The unforgiveness that we harbor in our lives, the things we watch, the jokes we tell, the backbiting we do, the adultery that we commit. Guys, not only in the flesh, but with our eyes. The trash we talk, the lack of desire that we have for God, the conformity that we do into the world the idols that we have. God sees it all. We can't hide it. And we all have sin. And we all need to claim 1 John 1, nine, to confess our sins to God that we might be made righteous before Him. It starts by admitting we're sinners. This morning you may be here and you've never heard the gospel. I know most of you. I know most of you have heard the gospel because I've said it over and 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 over. And I'll always say it over and over and over and over. But there's some that I don't know. And there's some that need to understand that without the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what we do, how good we are, we can never obtain salvation through works. Never through anything that comes from man, but only through the power of Jesus Christ. And it starts by admitting that, you know what, I am a sinner. I've broken one of the laws. I've looked at a woman with lust. I've told a lie. I've stole something. If that's you, then you're a lying, thieving, adulteress. And you've broken the commandments of God. And God is a just God. And the penalty must be paid. And Jesus Christ paid that penalty on Calvary when He said to Telestide is finished. Paid in full. And this morning, if you fail to trust in Jesus Christ as the only way, then you will receive an eternal exile. But if you receive Him this morning, you will be wiped clean. You will be forgiven. You will be seen by God as righteous because He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. When we see that we are in exile, 
I want you to see that the timeless truth is this. Verse 11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. God knows all things. You were known in the womb before you were created in the womb. And you were saved for good works. God speaks to Israel here, to these exiles, and He says, Listen, Israel, I have a plan. Don't you be listening to all the false teachers promising you things, all the junk that I've never said. I alone, God of the universe, know the plans that I have for you. Though you've sinned, and I have sent you into exile, Israel, I have always had a plan, declares the Lord. And that plan is to not leave you there. Do you see the hope in that? Whatever it is in our life that's holding us back, that's holding us down, that, that we're living in this valley because our Christian walks like a roller coaster. We're up and we're down. And when we get into valleys, we maybe need to settle there. And you go, God, what are you trying to teach me? Because I know the plans that you have for me, and it's not to leave me here. It's not to leave me here. God promises to never leave nor forsake you. But that don't mean you're not going to have hard times, brothers and sisters. That don't mean our sin will not seek us out and that we won't reap what we sow. But the timeless truth here is that God has a plan for you even in your exiles to bring you back to Himself. It's part of His plan. He's in control of your life. Nothing you go through is not out of the sovereignty of God. It's always been plans for welfare. He intends for fortune, not misfortune. Though you may be living in misfortune in the eyes of the world, how do we not know that that is the fortune of God that He has for you? When God says you are weak, He is strong. The trials in our lives that we come up against are not there to hurt us, but to help us. They're not there to devastate us, but to develop us. They're not there to mar us, but to mature us, to grow, and not to live in calamity. Israel is going, you could say, through hell on earth because of their disobedience to God. And God says, I got you where you are, not to harm you, but to give you a future and a hope. Loving God will never leave you where you are in your sin, brothers and sisters. That's comforting and scary. It's comforting and scary. Because He doesn't want us to leave there. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go into exile. I don't want to go through trials. I don't want to be in hard times in life where God's going to teach me something, but I know if I'm there, it's because He's trying to reveal something to me. He's trying to grow me. He's trying to make me into something beautiful and, and, and more into the image of Christ. But I don't want to go there. 
And so I catch myself as, as I'm tempted to sin or something goes on, I go, hold on. I can do this. It's pleasing. I want to do it. But if I do it, I should expect exile. Because God punishes those He loves. And so you can bet in my mind, I'm thinking, e, is it worth it? Well, sometimes the God we worship is not as real as the people on earth. Because we close God out and we do it. And then we follow the picture of Israel. Thinking that what we do is hidden from God. And that the righteous judgment that we are owed will escape us. If you're in Christ this morning, listen. Please don't misinterpret that you are in Jesus Christ. You are secure in your salvation, but not secure in that God won't exile you, that He won't use you, He won't bring trials into your life to grow you. He wants us to be made more like His Son. And unfortunately, well fortunately His Son is perfect, unfortunately we're not. And so we struggle with this because we do sin. And that's why I think it's important that we confess our sins to God daily. If you sin a hundred times, I want to encourage you to confess it a hundred times and allow God to begin to understand you know you are humble before God and that you can't have victory over this on your own. And in time, God will begin to mold you and make you and grow you that you can be fruitful. God doesn't promise us health. He doesn't promise us wealth. And He doesn't promise us prosperity. And you can watch preacher after preacher on the television and they will promise you, claim it, name it and claim it. And I want to tell you, that's a false prophet. God doesn't promise you anything but eternal life and to be forgiven through Jesus Christ. That's a false prophet. These people are listening to false prophets and we need to shy away from false prophets that, that offer us wealth, health, and prosperity. The prosperity gospel. That's unfair to the Word of God. Because I can tell you, there are a lot of poor, godly people in this world. There are a lot of hurting, physically, mentally ill, godly people in this world. And if that's true, if God wants to offer us wealth, health, and prosperity, then God falls on His promise in my life. He falls on your promise in your life. Well, if you just live right good enough, you can have all of these things That's a bunch of baloney. God promise us a future hope that Jesus Christ is going to come back again, that He will trumpet that horn and He will burst through those clouds and that day will be absolutely wonderful because we will enter into eternal life where there is no health problems, there is no pain, there is no suffering, but eternal worship of the King of kings and Lord of lords. When that trumpet sounds, oh, what a day of rejoicing it will be. We will all see Jesus and sing and shout the victory. I will bring you back, God says.
This morning, I want you to know, God will bring you back. And when He moves, we see in verses 12 to 14, He says, then, then, when God moves, you see, everything revolves around God, not us. God moves when He wants to move. God does what He wants to do because He's God, He's sovereign, He's in control. He says, I will visit you in verse 10 and fulfill my good works word to you and, and bring you, I will bring you back. And then in verse 12, he says, then you will call upon me. When he moves, then, then, then we will call upon him and come and pray to him. And then he says, I will listen to you. We have this idea in our culture that we're in control. God's in control. God says, I will listen. You will seek me and find me when you search for me. You see, there's a responsibility that God has given us to search and to, to plead for it, to go after God. And when you search with for me with all of your heart, you see, you, you're in this place and we need to, to begin to search after God with all of our heart. To, to be honest with God, transparent with God. And He says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortune and you and, and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have scattered you. I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to, a, to a, the place from where I have sent you into exile. You see, the promise is to be delivered. This morning in this church and in churches across America, we need deliverance. We need deliverance from trials, from tribulations, from bondage, from captivity. And when we begin to seek after God with all of our heart, He will begin to hear us. He will begin to hear our prayers. And He will begin to deliver us. He says, I will deliver you from all the places I have driven you. God drives us to places because He has a plan and a hope and a restoration. This morning, Jesus Christ is our restoration. He is our hope. Let us pray. Father and Lord, we love You and we thank You. We thank You that You give us a hope and a promise not to leave us, never forsake us, to leave us in our trials. God, You know what's going on in our lives. And God, as a pastor, I know the things people are dealing with in their lives. I know the trials they're going through. And I just plead and I beg with You, God, deliver your people allow their heart to seek after you with all they have and to know that whether it's in this life or the life to come 
that you will deliver us. You will not fall short on that promise. Sometimes we have thorns in our side, in our flesh. And they'll be there until we see you. But when Jesus Christ comes back, He will deliver us. and He will receive us to Himself. That where He is, we may be also. We just pray for deliverance in this church and the Christian communities across the nation. And we pray for deliverance as a nation. As the moral decline happens right before our very eyes, God, help us to be steadfast in lifting up prayers to our nation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.